so that the filibustering begin. I rise today to begin to filibuster. I will speak until I can no longer speak. I will speak as long as it takes. I'm prepared to stand on this floor and talk about the need for this body to come together for frankly as long as I can because I know that we can come together on this issue. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records or to, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better. Now let me just enumerate some of the reasons. We're engaged in a filibuster, a way to divert attention from what we're doing today, to obstruct, and that's what's going on today. Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Calling in from the West Coast is our old friend James Fennessy. James, say hello. Hello. And calling in from kind of the East Coast is Roya Rustamian, who is an adjunct instructor at SNHU. Hello, Roya. Hi, hello. So today we're going to talk about Roya's educational and professional background and her research interests. So what is your name and what do you do? Well, my name is Roya Rostamian, and currently I'm teaching history at Southern New Hampshire University as an adjunct instructor. My interest in history is the Middle East and the world history. I am also doing general education courses at SNHU. On the others, on the, on the side, I have a small engineering company called Metro Geotechnical LLC. I am a geotechnical engineer by profession. My in my profession. I am looking for solutions for foundation problems, basically. That's what I do. And I work as a consultant. My major clients are DeKalb County, Georgia, and Georgia Department of Transportation. I have a small child, so I work on a part-time basis. I do not take lots of projects. I take as little as possible. Well, Roya, it sounds like you have you keep busy with projects and you have a pretty varied background. Could you tell us a little bit about your educational background, how you came to be interested in history, but also um, you know any other degrees that you have and how you it sounds like you have a really nice um, combination of kind of a STEM background and a liberal arts background. So maybe go into that a little bit. Yes, I was always interested in history, of course. I grew up in Iran after the revolution, basically, and as much as I wanted to go to study history, but the opportunity to do anything with it was very limited because of the government control over liberal arts and you were not allowed to speak. So my parents encouraged me to go study engineering. So I studied civil engineering and I graduated from University of Esfahan with my bachelor's degree. After I graduated in 1993, I decided to leave Iran. The situation in the country was not ideal for me. Iran is an oil-producing country. It was not much of an economic problem as much as it's an intellectual problem. So I decided to leave. I applied for a job in the United States with my degree, and luckily I was able to come in. I got a job in a company called United Consulting Group in Atlanta. They were an engineering company. My... Uh, 
background in engineering was a combination of civil engineering and geology. So these companies did this, exactly the same thing as I did. They hired me as a technician since my degree was from Iran. And I started to work as a technician in that company in 1995. By the time the paperwork was done, my visa was issued. It was February 1995 when I started there. I worked for that company for two years. In 1997, I moved to another company. This time, I was I was working as a staff engineer. In 2000, in year 2000, I decided to go for a master to get a master's degree. First of all, I needed an American degree if I wanted to continue, and also, I well, it was time to advance my career, so I went. Applied at Georgia Institute of Technology, and I got accepted, and I completed my master's degree there. It was a very good educational background, and it gave me... This was where I learned to research. I was get, I got interested into, in problem solving and research. And of course, as I said, my job was to solve problems in engineering world, especially soil as a foundation base can have a life of its own. Earth is a living thing, and when you put structures on top of the earth, you will you will have to deal with this dynamic living creature that impacts static structure. Uh, static structure. So to adjust the soil under the foundation is a very important issue for the building construction. So I get into this business and I worked. For the same, while I was studying, I worked for the same company. I worked for that company from 1997 until 2005. I'm sorry, for until 2007. In 2007, I decided to start my own business. There was lots of opportunities for, for women engineers, and I. But the company did good. I had I had enough client base to start a business, and I did that. The business was successful. At the same time, my son was born in 2008, so that was the ideal situation for me to have my own business, work on my own schedule, and taking care of a baby as well. So I did that until 2013, when while I was working as a civil engineer, I realized that the problem of terrorism that we dealt with in Iran, I lived with it for years, and I understood it from inside out. And then the terrorism became a major world issue, and I realized solving it requires, I can combine my understanding of solving problems with particulate media structures. See, human society is also a particulate media. Soil is also a particulate media. They both function in a way that they are medias that are not homogeneous. They have, like, like individual humans in the society, have certain forces that behaves on them. The same happens in the soil. So I figured I need to go study social sciences. I went back to school. I studied history. I graduated in 2015 with a degree in history, with a master's degree in history. I started to doing research while I was in school and after that, and I also decided to teach. My goal is to get out of engineering and move into social sciences full-time on one day when I, when I get a chance. At this time, I started to study terrorism. I started to research about the structures of terrorist organizations. I gathered as much information as I could about them. I had some background because I lived in a country where terrorists controlled it, so I understood a lot about it. I studied Islamic sciences. I studied about Islam. I studied about, you know, I'm a Christian by myself, but I studied about Islam full, on a full-time basis. And 
I understood the, re the relationship between ideology and violence and terror organizations and I actually I'm writing a book about it that should be coming out on Amazon within a week or two. At the same time, what I'd like to say about history as a career, I got really excited to become, an, become a historian because everything we do in this world, it comes to history. You know, everything we do, it becomes history. So history is a key to understanding and solving any problem in the world, even in engineering world, we use history. Because until we understand the history of the problems that occurred in the past, why they occurred, and how to solve them, even in earth sciences, we have to understand the history of earth, history of formation. We, we cannot solve a problem in soul sciences until we understand the history of the soul. Where it came from, how was it formed, how it happened. So it's all history. All world is connected to history. So... That's why I decided to have a career in history. I think anyone in any career have to have historical background in order to solve, to be able to solve problems. Yeah, I agree. My dissertation was on environmental history. And so there's been a lot of work in environmental history and in other fields also where you try to look at what do they call it? Big history, I think, where you try to incorporate prehistory geological changes and the Earth's tilt. That One of my advisors in grad school wrote a book on the entirety of history. And so it, it starts off by talking about, you know, like the tilt of the axes and all of that. But eventually it gets into the, the natural environment and then the interaction of humanity with the natural environment, which is basically the story of humanity. It's humans trying to gain access to resources, fighting over resources, using resources to create new things. That's basically the entirety of, of human history. And so exactly. it's interesting to see you approach this from kind of an engineering perspective, um, because that's kind of like one of the central themes of humanity is, you know, if you, I don't know how cliched we want to get with taming the wilderness or something like that, but it's all yeah. about building something out of the resources that the land provides and creating something new with it. And that's really interesting that you're coming at it from that perspective. Yes, exactly. I believe that all human social organizations, including terror, modern terror organizations, are formed, are self-organized. Humans self-organize into groups to overcome to the limitations of the environment and to produce food or to produce something, to have a goal. And all of these organizations, like societies, countries, corporations, they all, all of these human beings self-organize because they take advantage of being inside the group to control the environment. And one thing that suddenly impacts the environment is technology. As technology improves, the environment changes drastically and over the past century, the technology has changed the human environment so drastically that social organizations are changing rapidly. And this kind of a change also releases some potential energy within these structures. And that sometimes manifests into violence. So lots of the, lots of the things that we see in the world is readjustment of human societies to adjust with the new technology that alters the world, alters our world completely. The role of women, the role of men, the, the role of humans, the food getting product, other economy, everything is impacted by technology. So, so Roy, it's, you've had a what sounds like a fascinating 
professional, personal, and intellectual journey that brought you to studying history. Um, you had mentioned that you were interested in studying history back in Iran, but that you know the state has a very strong hold over the regulation of information. Can you talk a little bit about that experience growing up in Iran and the interest that you had, especially you know school interests or, or interest in history, and how that impacted you specifically? I'm sure that a lot of people would be interested in hearing the experience of somebody who grew up in a different society where it's a very different government structure, very different social norms, and where information is so heavily guarded. Well, unfortunately, the problem with Iran, especially before the 1990s, Internet was not such a worldwide access. We didn't have such access to Internet. So, and the government could control information so heavily, all the books were banned. Anyone who wrote a book, their books sat in the, on someone, some administrator's desk for years before they get a permission to publish it. And when that book was getting published, it was half chopped. And accessing books from outside world was almost impossible. The books that we had access to, like our high school had the basement that all of the books were moved from the library to the basement. I remember we broke the window and our fascination and our, you know, while all other high school students are working on other things, we were, we were going to the basement of the, our high schools sitting on the dusty books and start finding books and read them. That's what we did, because those books were banned from school library. You, could, you couldn't find them in the bookstores. They were available before the revolution, but after the revolution, they were all banned, even regular novels and regular books. Or, so it was a difficult situation to be in. And yes, I wanted to study history when I wanted to go to college, but my father was a professor at the university at that time, and he told me, I will not recommend that to you because I'm going to tell you from now. Either you're going to be frustrated and will drop out, or you're going to be sitting in jail for a while because knowing you, you're not going to be able to go to that field. I would recommend that you go to engineering field, get a job, get a degree, have a life. Well, I couldn't really argue with him much. <laughs> so I did that. I followed this advice. I am not sure if I'm happy that I did that or not. I am glad that finally I dis decided to go back and do what I wanted. I am so glad that I made that decision to study history finally. Well, we're glad you did too. I can understand, I guess, feeling the regret that you didn't do that earlier, but it is also at the same time completely understandable that you made that choice. You may be passionate about history, but if you've got a regime in place that is going to punish you for it, then it certainly is realistic and, I forget what word I'm looking for, practical or whatever to make the decision not to not to pursue it out of, you don't even need to call it self-interest, it's just, you know, you don't want to spend your life in prison or something, so it's not at all... Self-preservation? Yes, there you go, <laughs> yeah, self-preservation, I mean, it's, it's not... Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah, I understand that you might regret that, but I also understand your decision, and I don't think anyone would fault you for making that decision. You may fault it yourself, I guess, but there, I don't think anybody outside you will. I, I am regretting when I came to United States, instead of going to, and study engineering, I didn't go to study history. But at the same ah, time, okay. study engineering helped me to understand how to use history. But maybe that's, maybe that's not such a bad thing either. No, I, I agree. I think that's a, I, I think that's good, and it, it is beneficial to history 
the study of history and to historians to have kind of an outside perspective like that because you know historians i mean we may tend to belittle the science and engineering folks and the engineering and science folks may belittle historians and human people in the humanities but there is something that we can all learn from each other and i think the engineering perspective probably does give you a pretty unique view of history that a lot of us who weren't trained in engineering do not have and so I i think it's really really interesting that you've got that perspective I, for one, would really like to hear more about the connections between that as we move on with this conversation. I did a lot of research recently for a talk that I gave on, it was on public history, but what that then opened the door into more research into STEM and the whole STEAM initiative, which if if anybody listening isn't aware, is the insertion of the arts into a STEM program. And the idea is how STEM students can benefit from, you know, more humanistic outlook on life. And I would argue that that's not a one-way direction. That goes both ways. So as your experience is proving, humanities students and historians and people who study literature can actually learn quite a bit from the STEM perspective as well, because we are moving into an increasingly technological and digital world. And if we just focus on the human aspects of learning, so history, literature, um, communication, we're really setting ourselves up as people in the humanities and historians to not really be prepared, not only not be prepared for the workforce, but not be aware of different ways of thinking as well. And I think that your experience really points to the benefits that historians can take from learning in the STEM field, as well as what STEM students can learn from studying humanities and history. So I really would love to hear more about the thought processes that you apply to your study of history that have a source in your STEM background. Yes, actually, it goes both ways, I think. First of all, human societies also have structures. Like, for example, from an engineering standpoint, when I look at a structure, I look at what forces impact that structure. The same applies to human, to any human organization. For a terror organization, for example, any terror organization. If we want to destroy that organization, we have to understand its environment, why it's, because in a similar environment, similar organ, similar organizations will form, because the environment is suitable for them, especially human organizations are dynamic organizations, they are self-grown, like, like any life form. So first we have to understand why the environment has become suitable for these terror organizations to manifest. Second, how they are structured. And third, what is their goal? So these are the main issues of a terror organization. As far as the structure concerns, if we want to destroy it, we have to understand what forces balance it. It's that structure is organized and balanced because there are forces that balances it. Social forces, of course, economical forces, ideological forces, political forces. And we have to understand the nature of these organizations before we can have any meaningful impact in getting rid of them, because that's the major world problem today. When you went and got your master's degree in history, was your MA thesis, was that on terrorism? Was it specific to Iran or was it in yes, terrorism in general? Master, yes, my master's degree was, in the, was about Iran and terrorism, yes. And what were your conclusions in that? Uh, what was your general argument and what, did you, what were your conclusions in that project? My, my general argument was that the current Iranian government is neither a Shia government nor Iranian government in nature. This is a terrorist organization 
It's formed 10 years before the Iranian Revolution, and they staged and constructed the Iranian Revolution and took over the country. And since then, they are using the resources of the country since 1979 to spread terrorism. And I found connections between the Iranian government and all sorts of terror organizations terror organization in my master's degree. And then you've had a series of publications since then, it sounds like, and these have all been on that same general topic, or has your thinking evolved over time? Well, I still stick to that. I have a, I, I, I wrote a book on that also, and also I am publishing a series of books that are generally are about Islam, its relationship with science, its relationship with women, its relationship with terrorism. I am also having a conversation about terrorism, violence, and ideology. So I moved away a little bit from Iranian government and moved more into the core of the, where the problem is and how to solve that problem because that's probably one of the major issues that has to be solved. But Iranian revolution occurred in 1979 and since the establishment of that government, since 1980s, we are, that's where we see lots of terror organizations of very complicated form manifesting all around the world that seems to be isolated, seems to be separate from each other, and seems to have no sense of organization. But if you connect the dots together, we see where it's all connected. So how many books have you published so far? Well, I have published two, but uh, I will be publishing three more within the next two weeks. They're all written. I'm just going to published them via Amazon. I found Amazon to be a good platform to publish public oh, okay. books. Because most people, especially younger generations, they are interested in electronic books and Kindle, so I figured that's a better way to publish books. Yeah, I'm a fan of, fan of the Kindle myself. That's one of the things that's changing in the future. So when you go about uh, publishing your research and your books through Amazon. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Because we've we've spoken to um, to other historians about the actual publication process, and you know, in various publication processes. So whether they're publishing articles, whether they're publishing books, but just interested in what your experience has been, because I think that's a really strategic move on your part to be able to interact with a larger audience and to make your research more accessible. And it's such. I mean, your topics are so timely and so important that I think it it really helps to be able to get that information out faster than having to go through the traditional um, publication process. So is there, could you share some of uh, your experiences and what's worked and what might not be working with us as far as um, how historians can publish via Amazon? Well, I think uh, with Amazon publishing, it is a very simple and easy way to publish work if you, Amazon does not put a limit on your word counts for a publication. You can have as little as 3,000 words and as much as you want. That's one of the good things. Microsoft Word is very easily convertible to both Kindle format and a regular publishing format. So they're both very easy to do. And there is very little involved as, as long as you get your, the only challenge is that you get your formatting and your editing work done right, you know, I do recommend to get help from people who are experts in that field, you know, they're for especially for editorial purposes. But uh, Amazon has such a good self-guide system that it makes it very easy 
to publish a book and have it access accessible within 48 hours, basically. When you're publishing on Amazon, it's kind of a self-publication type process. Do you go through any kind of a peer review process? Do you send these out to other scholars to get feedback before you publish it? Or do you, do you, do you have a process? Because I'm just looking at this, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the professional historians out there who a lot of them, I, I think wrongly, but a lot of them kind of look, you know, they look down on self-published books because, you know, it doesn't go through the formal academic publishing process and all of that. And I think they're a little bit blinded when they kind of have this blanket assumption that anything that is self-published is, you know, inferior in some way. Do you have a way that you would assuage people of those types of arguments? Do, or do you go, do you have the, do you run this by other scholars in the field, that kind of thing? Oh, I try basically to follow basic historical research procedures, you know, as far as citations and laying out my argument based on primary and secondary sources. So for a trained historian, I, that would be probably be enough to get them interested to read it. Most of the stuff that I published, they were all researched during college. The, ba the basic papers were written while I was still in, in grad school. Uh, I, you know, fine-tuned them and I added to them, but they were reviewed by professors who were teaching the class. But other than that, I haven't done anything to make them peer-reviewed, no. Well, right, yeah, you run into that problem when you're, if you're not going through the formal academic publisher, it can be very difficult to arrange that stuff because, yeah, otherwise the editors would be doing all that for you. And so if you're doing it on your own, it would be very difficult to do so. All right. I think we've covered your career. We've covered your research interests. Uh, why don't we move on to recommendations? James, what do you have for us today? Today, I wanted to just introduce a documentary film called Call Her Gonda. It's directed by P. Jaraval, who actually happens to be a friend of mine. And it's getting some great press. It, uh, it debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival. And it is this the account of a Filipina sex worker and her murder at the hands of um, American Marines on leave at that time. So, you know, it's not only an investigation into a current event, but it also looks at the history there of um, American presence within the Philippines and how that's impacted local society. So um, really is uh, a great jumping off point to continue to investigate some of those historical trends and the the presence of America in the Philippines. So I do highly recommend seeing it if you get a chance. I'm not quite sure what the release prospects are just yet. Um, it did show in San Francisco about a month and a half ago at the Castro Theater. So I think it's limited release, but if you do get the opportunity to see the film, um, I highly recommend it. When was the murder? 2014. Oh, interesting. I, that's much more recent than I thought it was. I figured that was going to be something that happened like back in the 80s or something. During the Cold War 80s or, or 90s? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> nope. Very recent, um, which is you know why I say it is a current event, but um, it does give us a window into some of those historical relationships between the U.S. and the Philippines and is actually a great segue into starting to learn a bit more about that situation. Yeah. And that is a long history there with colonization and being the territory after the Spanish-American War and all that fun stuff. Roya, do you have anything to recommend to us today? 
Okay, the book that I would like to recommend is called The History of Iran, Empire of the Mind, written by Michael Axworthy. It's a very interesting book. It's written in first time published in 2007. It's available on Amazon and Goodread. And Michael Axworthy is a British academic author, and the book is very interesting. And I think it's very relevant in today's world. All right, that sounds great. My recommendation today is George Washington's Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It's a, probably a fairly well-known book among historians, but for some reason my son decided to pick this up when we were in Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago. And it's completely strange for an eight-year-old to want to buy this because he does not obey any of these rules of civility and he has no desire to actually learn any of these rules. But uh, it's an interesting book that it, evidently this was because when George Washington was a child – he decided to write down 110 rules of behavior because he wanted to be very proper in his bearing and interactions with others and all of that. And so he put together this pamphlet, or, or, or it later was published as a book, but it probably started off as a journal or something, I don't know. But it was 110 of these rules that everybody is supposed to, you know, obey <laughs> to be civilized and, and have good behavior and all of that. And it's just amazing. These are some really amazing pieces of advice for how people should comport themselves. And so just, you know, just a few random ones of these. Speak not evil of the absent, for it is unjust. Pretty basic. But, you know, being set at meat, scratch not, neither spit, cough, or blow your nose, unless there is a necessity for it. You know, okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. That's interesting, actually. Yeah. Uh, while you were talking, point not with your finger at him of whom you discourse, nor approach too near him to whom you talk, especially to his face. I mean, these are all written in, you know, 18th century English, and so not all these very easily decipherable. But, you know, don't point at people. It sounds uh, like uh, that last one LBJ really took to heart and then actively decided to break that rule. Oh, yeah. LBJ probably <laughs> broke all of these rules, as a matter of fact. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Number 60, be not immodest in urging your friends to discover a secret. Yeah, LBJ would definitely violate that one. So anyway, this has 110 interesting rules for behavior, uh, which are at least as of, you know, the 17. 40s. <laughs> that's what proper behavior was. So that's my recommendation is this this book, The Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation by George Washington. Okay. Well, I think that wraps things up. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Roya. Thank you very much. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, thank for you. Having me. Thanks. Bye-bye. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Feel free to follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Twitter, anywhere you like. For James Fennessy and Roya Rustamian, I am Rob Denning. Goodbye. Goodbye.